Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to, um, I'm pleased to say, a very sunny Hay Festival. So the rain has gone. It was interesting last night. Um, this event is, in, is presented in association with Cambridge University. Um, Professor Susan Gazzacol is a cognitive psychologist specialising in memory, learning and language. Her research is primarily in understanding the cognitive and brain mechanisms of childhood disorders, working memory and other executive functions. So if we could welcome Susan to the stage now, that'd be great. Thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, how nice to see you all here. It's a great opportunity for me and my family to come and engage in Hay as well. Um, so my aim in this lecture is to, is to introduce you to a kind of work of memory, known as working memory, that's vital for our everyday life. I'm going to be discussing how it works and often how it fails us, um, and both what we can do about that and what we can't do about that. So the capacity to keep the here and now in mind as we go forward into the present, is vital. And it requires us to have, at all times, a sort of mental notepad that we can carry around to hold information and carry it forward. So I think some of these um, everyday challenges may well be familiar to you. So um, someone comes and tells you their telephone number. You're hoping it's just a six or a seven-digit telephone number, and you've got to move to an adjacent room to find a pen and paper to write it down. Now, my guess is that that's going to be quite an effortful um, challenge for most of us. And what we have to do is we have to hold it in mind. We hope no one's going to speak to us while we're doing it. And dramatically and frantically rehearse as we keep going. Will we be able to remember the number? Well, it depends how many digits. So if it was someone's mobile number, probably not. If it was just a six-digit six number, probably. Um, but only if we're fortunate. So that's a good example of what we call short-term memory. So that involves the storage of information, and you have to hold it in exactly that format for then regurgitating it. So we have to give back the same telephone number we hear. So that's a relatively simple um, working memory task. So that short-term memory is a simple case of working memory. Now, consider these examples. So you're driving somewhere familiar, possibly to Hay on Wye. And uh, as you come into the town, it looks so simple on Google Maps, but in fact, you find you're hopelessly lost. Everywhere looks the same, or everywhere looks equally unfamiliar. And you have to stop to ask for directions. So um, inevitably, you'll find someone incredibly helpful um, to guide you when you wind the window down. And they'll say, when you pass the church on the left, turn immediately right, take the second left, and then they'll say, you can't miss it. <laughs> Why they said that, because it must have happened to them too, is not clear. Um, now, this is a major challenge. Actually, if you look at the, the number of chunks of information that have to be um, remembered there, it's, it's quite a lot, actually. And just simply repeating that back as though it was a telephone number will probably be a challenge to most of you, us. Um, but actually, not only that, but you have to hold it in mind while you're doing something complex at the same time, in this case, driving through an unfamiliar route, making decisions as you go along. And you're having to tick off each step. So that's really a classic working memory task, where you have to hold something in mind. It's doing something absolutely vital to allow you to engage in controlled behavior. Um, and it's relatively arbitrary information, and it's all a bit hazardous. OK, so here's another example from my life. Um, so you decide to uh, try a new recipe. So you have your iPad out on the side. That's good, because it's there at all times. 
Um, and then it goes on to screensaver, just the critical moment at which you try to get the ingredients out of the cupboard. So it's arbitrary combinations, often, of um, ingredients and then amounts. So again, it's, it's a list-like format. Exceptionally difficult to remember, very easy to confuse. You can remember this, a teaspoon of something, a tablespoon of something else. But it's, it's very easy to lose that detail of what amount goes with what ingredient. And that's another feature of short-term and working memory, is that we're quite good at holding a limited amount of information, but if it gets exceeded, if it's too lengthy, then it all starts breaking apart and we just have fragments that we can't combine, in this case to possibly disastrous consequences. Actually, probably not. It's only for heaters. It wouldn't be disastrous. Um, OK, here's another one. This is... On the face of it, quite a simple working memory demand. So you're in the supermarket and you find actually, actually you haven't got the card that you wanted in your wallet, um, but you have got £10 cash. It's OK. You should be able to do it. But it's going to be tight. And what that means is that as you go around picking um, now the critical items off the shelves, not the things that you, you think you might need, but you don't really, um, you have to um, keep a tally of how much you've spent. Um, in fact, that's quite um, a challenging working memory situation, not because remembering one number or doing that quite simple mental arithmetic is challenging, but because uh, it's, you're doing that at the same time as doing all sorts of other things, making decisions, navigation, and whatever, and sometimes having to make changes of plans. So again, that's a good example of working memory helping you carry out something complex, but in which it's um, all a bit fragile. Okay, so that's what working memory is. Um, now, I'm going to step back before saying too much about the properties of working memory, um, which are quite well known. Um, and first of all, I'm just going to talk about the other types of memory that we have available to us. So one of the really interesting things about human memory is we, we, t we tend to talk about memory rather than memories, um, that capacity we have to remember things. And it feels as though we're just remembering. We're, we're using the same system to remember everything. But in fact, what we now know, and have known for many years, is that there are four or five, maybe six, memory systems that are more or less independent of each other that we use, that we know that there are different systems in the brain, that they have different properties, that they help us remember different types of information. Um, but we don't have to make the choice about which of these memory systems we're going to use. It's just what we remember. Sometimes... Um, People become um, evangelical about working memory. They think working memory is everything. But first of all, I just need to explain what other memory systems there are. And it turns out this is quite important because when we get to those situations or those individuals for whom working memory often fails, we have got these other systems that we can rely on so we can actually exploit their properties and find some sort of compensation. So I'm very briefly going to um, train you to become working um, memory experts. It doesn't actually take long. It's taken psychologists about 80 years to get this far, but in 10 minutes we'll get there. <laughs> and then I'm going to test you. <laughs> Don't worry about that for the moment. Okay, so we're going to start off with the, um, the longer-lasting, more enduring memory systems, which are often called long-term memory. Um, confusingly, there isn't just one long-term memory system. So um, I'm going to use them by their more specific names. But this is definitely a long-term memory system. This is semantic memory. So that's the, the, the body, the repertoire of knowledge of facts that we've built up during our life. So it's the, it's the concepts that we know. We know what a tent is. We know what a festival is. We know what the meaning of a word is. We know the properties of a table, typically. Um, so it's all of that information that we build up over our many experiences. 
And, um, of course, it's just vital. We can't imagine even thinking or communicating via language without having this body of knowledge that's um, con continuously accumulating. This is a very long-lasting form of memory. Um, it potentially lasts for a lifetime. Uh, there are types of acquired brain damage that occur, some of the dementias, for example, where you lose very specific areas of semantic memory. So, for example, people have been recorded as, as losing the knowledge they have about animals, for example, where other areas of fact-based knowledge are preserved. But typically, as long as we revisit those facts sufficiently frequently, um, we will be able to keep them going for more or less a lifetime. So the commonly used words we use, for example. Um, Technical phrases that we learned at one time, or maybe we, um, terms that we used at school, if we haven't returned to them, they may be vaguely familiar afterwards, but we won't be able to retrieve them easily. Might be one of the good things about crosswords, in fact, is that they force us to revisit the far reaches, the neglected reaches of our lexicon from time to time. Okay, so here are two examples of um, information that we hold in, in um, semantic memory. One is knowing that Paris is, is the capital of France and also knowing the meaning of words. Now, there's one really good hallmark that tells you whether or not, when you're remembering something or thinking something, whether it's coming from semantic memory. And that is, do you know that it's true? Right, K-N-O-W, know. Is it knowledge? Or is it something that you just remember someone telling you at a particular point in time? And the characteristic of semantic memory is that because everything that's in our fact-based knowledge has been encountered to us so many times, we've sort of stripped from our memories all of the different individual episodes and situations in which we've encountered it. And we're just left with the kernel, the sort of dictionary definition, if you like, of that particular fact. So if someone says to you, um, can you remember when you learned that Paris is the capital of France? You probably won't be able to. You, can, you just know that Paris is the capital of France. So that's our semantic memory. Right, here's another very long-term memory system, uh, which is called autobiographical memory. And um, you might be able to guess that from its title that this is the memory system that helps us retain memories from across our life. And also, as well as specific memories, it's the knowledge we have about our lifetime story, our personal narrative. So where we were born, where we went to school, our family, those sort of facts about ourselves that actually we use partly to de define ourselves and understand when we're looking back into, in time. Uh, we also know that autobiographical memories can last for a lifetime. So um, any of you here or who are in middle age and can remember something from when they were five or six or seven years of age will probably be able to remember that in 20 years' time also. So if, the if those memories have persisted, they will tend to last for a long period of time. Of course, what we can't remember is everything we've experienced, and that would um, both be uncomfortable and impossible. Um, so it simply wouldn't make sense to have a memory system that runs like a video recording that keeps everything. So instead, what we tend to remember is those um, events and episodes that are particularly personally relevant or maybe surprising or emotional to us. And sometimes there are things like weddings, for example, or your first day at school, typically people can remember these, uh, the particular event. There's another sense in which they're no nothing like a video recording. So they tend to be, when we remember something from 20 or 30 years ago, what we remember is bits and pieces, fragments of that original event. So it's as though the, a lot of the detail has been lost. And what we recorded at the original time, what we laid down in our memory, was actually our understanding of what was important and what was happening. 
So it might even not have been happening. If we misunderstood an event, then what we do actually record in our memory is that misunderstanding. Um, and we may have neglected all sorts of things that were, that were going on that were of no interest. So when we come back decades on to try and understand these sort of fragments of memories, um, what we have to do is we have to reconstruct them. We have to make a story or a narrative, so we have to figure out what was likely to have happened first in our, using our knowledge about the structures of weddings, for example. And that can be why um, you and a friend who both um, encountered it, were there at an event will have disagreements about details of it, it's because there are all these sources of inconsistency between your memories, both in the details and also in the reconstruction event of, of the event. Okay, so autobiographical memory, very useful, can be disrupted by brain, um, acquired brain damage and um, has a big impact when it does actually on our sense of self because our autobiographical memories do define us. Okay, we're still on long-term memories now, but we're getting to shorter-term, long-term memories, more temporary ones. And this is one that um, psychologists typically call episodic memory. And these are the details that we have, the relatively recent experiences that we've had. So, for example, if you cast your mind back, you'll probably be able to remember breakfast this morning. You'll be able to remember where you sat, any conversations that you had. You'll probably be able to remember very accurately and almost have a visual image of what you chose to have and where it was placed on the table. So um, episodic memory is quite often like re-experiencing. It's as though you can go back and sort of be there. That's a memory system that, that lasts, um, it fades with time, and usually by several days or possibly a week, there's not much left of it. So it's a very gradual gradient. But we're best at remembering things that's happened to us today. Um, okay, where's the car? So let, let me give you an example of um, one common failing, particularly, actually, if you... Um, park every day at work, and um, you go out at the end of the day and you find your car's not where you thought it was. Um, now, it turns out that where you thought it was was driven by your semantic memory because that's your favourite place to park in the car park, away from the tree where all sorts of things can happen with respect to the birds, and um, near the gate, and it's your, the optimal place. Um, but so often we're actually, even when we're remembering something that happened recently, we use semantic memory where possible. So that's a fact that it's usually there. Now, when we find the car's not there, after the initial panic, what we do is we, okay, well, cast your mind back to that to the details this morning. You remember either that you took the train or you had to park it somewhere else. Or, um, so what we can do is we can, it's not that that memory went, but we just didn't have very easy access to it. So with the right sort of cues, we can go back and actually get at that information. So that's the quality of episodic memory. It's unlike um, semantic memory because you're actually remembering all of the details. It's, it's like re-experiencing. And it's long-term in, in some respect, but nowhere near as long-term as the other systems. And here we come to um, working memory. So this is extremely recent information that we've attended to. In fact, it's so recent we've still got it in mind, so we've managed to preserve it, to nurture it as the present moves on in time. If, we just, if something's in our working memory um, and then we just lose attention from it, we start thinking about something else, then it will only last for seconds, unless we do something active to, to, keep, um, to keep the contents going. It's almost to kind of boost them up so they're, they're still there. Um, it's um, extremely limited in capacity, so I've already talked about that, but um, often it's, it's suggested that we have somewhere between four or seven chunks of information that we can hold within working memory. In fact, it depends on the types of materials. For things like sentences, which have a particular structure, which is predictable, we might be able to remember 12 or 13 words. 
Um, but um, what happens when that capacity, our individual capacity, is exceeded is that it all starts falling apart and we start losing even the information that we'd already banked in working memory. Um, to preserve the context, to keep them going, um, for example, moving to the, the, an, a room to, to be able to find a pen to write a number down, requires continued attention. So it needs to be the focus of attention. That is nothing else has to be the focus of our attention. So if we get um, an unexpected phone call or an unbidden thought springs to mind or someone speaks to us, then we lose that, that focus and therefore the contents of working memory. Um, this is often called catastrophic loss, this property. So once you've got, you know, you're holding the six numbers, the seven numbers, once they start going, everything starts going. And quite unlike episodic memory, what happens in working memory is that it's gone. And it's really as though the slate is, is wiped clean. So when a child in a classroom is given an instruction, um, can't remember it, and um, the teacher says, come on, try harder, they actually can't. So that information for them has actually fallen outside of their span of working memory. So it's incredibly important, it turns out, this capacity is vital, really, or working within this capacity is vital. If we want to get knowledge, experiences, learn things, that they're in more permanent states in some of our rather safer memory systems, the longer-term memory systems. So what we're really interested in is ensuring the safe transport, often, of information from working memory to longer-term memory. So let's recap. These are the memory systems we talked about. Semantic memory, uh, that's for facts. Autobiographical memory um, records events, specific events that we've experienced and our knowledge about how our life is structured, and we can put that, work those two together. Um, episodic memory, this is relatively short-term, long-term memory for recent events, and working memory that holds in mind the immediate past. So, so you're experts now. I've got, I've got you there. So, um, so we're going to play what kind of memory now. So... First of all, remember a quotation from a Shakespeare um, play you studied at school. Particularly apt, there's a strong Shakespearean th theme to hey. Um, I can still remember tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps on this petty pace from day to day. It's um, indelibly printed on what memory system? Semantic. semantic memory, that's right. How do I know it's semantic? Well, I can't really remember learning it. I can't remember when I first encountered it. And it is, um, it's, it's, it's very basic, it's extremely well specified. It's there, it's accessible for me. I don't have to do an awful lot, lot of work to get that information. Um, how about if I just read the play for the first time this morning and I happen to have a really good particular type of memory, what, what type of memory would that be if I could manage to remember it several hours later? Episodic memory. Okay, um, right, um, I'd like you to um, multiply 12 by 9. You don't have to tell me what the solution is, but I'd like you to tell me what, what memory system you think you're using. Semantic memory, that's right. Um, does it depend on what our mathematical skills are like? Yes, so how about, for example, you weren't very good at your 12 times table. What memory system do you think it might involve then? Is anyone saying a bit of working memory? Good. Um, we'll come back to that. All right, here's another one. It's probably a clearer case. Um, you now I'd like to multiply 124 by 45. Um, if you don't know your 45 times table, <laughs> hard to believe. Um, what memory system do you think you might have to use there? 
Yeah, so we'd have to use working memory. We'd have to use semantic memory, wouldn't we? Because we'd have to access those facts that we have about number rules. And we'd have to hold information we up. We'd probably have to do it in two or three steps. And we'd have to hold those partial calculations in memory while we go off and carry out another calculation. And then hopefully successfully blend those numbers together. Um, I, um, a couple of years ago, I gave an example. Actually, I don't think it was as rounded an example as this to um, a group of um, senior staff from the science faculty at the University of York. And two physics professors immediately put up their hand and then shouted out the solution. <laughs> <clears throat> Um, okay, uh, where have you left your car keys? Who are you going to ask? Episodic memory. Any other type of memory you might be able to use? Autobiographical? That would be good, but it's not such a memorable thing, so whether or not it's a stay around. How about if you're one of those really methodical people who always put their car keys in the same place? What? Semantic memory. Okay, um... Right, you disagreed with a friend about who else was at a party a couple of years ago. Right, we're talking, we're talking about autobiographical memory there, aren't we? And we're not surprised. Um, right, amazing luck. There was an exam question that corresponded to last-minute revision. I'm sure there are some um, prospective um, A-level students here about to take their exams. Um, okay, so what type of memory system will you be benefiting from there? Yeah, episodic memory. That, that's what it's good for, remembering things that you did earlier this morning. Right, even better, there was another question on a topic which not only had you already done a coursework essay, but you'd given a presentation. Am I hearing someone say semantic memory? Okay, so that's, in many respects, um, one of the goals of learning and education can be to... Um, safely take information not only from working memory to episodic memory, but from um, episodic memory where you actually remember just that you've learned something in a particular situation to becoming semantic. So then you, you, it's, it's a fact. And we know that the ways that you can achieve that best are by multiply experiencing, working with material in different ways, reorganizing all those things that your tutors tell you to do, um, produce um, essay plans, answering particular questions, um, generate mind maps, possibly. All of these things will actually allow you to um, get to, to acquire complex concepts and make them fact-like for you, which will be much easier in terms of um, recollection subsequently. Nowhere near as dicey as episodic memory. Okay, um, tree-yielding acorn, three letters. Okay, semantic memory. Right, I'm, I, this could go on forever. Just one, just one more. Uh, right, retype a new password that you've just created. You have pass password aging in your institution. You can't believe that this has actually been forced upon you. Um, okay, not only that, but you can't have much overlap between your last passwords. So just adding 0102 at the end is not going to work. Uh, what sort of memory system do you think you might have to use? Yeah, not very reliable, though, is it? So it, it is very tricky. You might have to invest in a password manager. Okay. Right, so let me just tell you a few more things um, about working memory, some of the properties of working memory that I think you will find of interest. Um, firstly, is I've talked about working memory capacity, but it varies in a number of different ways. 
And it varies um, with age very systematically, and also it varies across individuals, even if they happen to be of the same age. So um, what you should be able to see here is a graph. It's actually some data that we've, we've collected from a working memory test. Um, this is a test in which I think it was um, a test we call um, listening span, where the participant has to listen to a sentence, which might be something like, pigs can fly. You have to say true or false to it. Then you hear another sentence and another sentence. And then at the end of a sequence, you have to remember the last word of each of those sentences. So the first word would be fly, for example, and then the, the, the last word of the next sentence and so on. We measure spans, so we see how, how, how many of those um, final words someone can remember. This is um, a feature of psychologists. We like to construct really bizarre tasks like this. Part there is sort of a good reason for doing that. The reason is um, people haven't been able to do that before, so they haven't developed strategies for doing it. So it tells you quite a lot about the raw resources, our raw ability to meet working memory demands in whatever form they might come. Okay, so um, here we have data. I think this is so puny, this point, I'm not even going to bother. Um, the, uh, for, but from about 100 children aged between 5 and 15 years on this particular test, and um, the, mid the middle... Um, symbol tells us the average performance across those ages. And what you can see is that there's a steady increase in working memory capacity. The numbers don't mean anything, actually. It's just do a particular scaling of the task. But a steady increase in working memory capacity over the primary school years and a bit beyond. Typically, whatever the measure of capacity increases by about two to two and a half times over that period. So that's quite a dramatic increase. And then you just get a small increase up through to adolescent. And by the time you're 15, as I'll show you in a minute, it's as good as it gets in working memory terms. Um, so, so that's interesting, and obviously that's relevant to um, the management, effective management of classrooms, really. So it means that, for example, the sort of instructions, the challenges that we place on children, they have to um, vary appropriately according to the likely capacity of the kids that are in the classroom trying to do these, these tasks. Um, but I want to draw your attention now to the lines that cross-cut each of these age points. And uh, the top line in each case corresponds to the child who's the top 10% of the ch children in that class or in that group um, in working memory terms. The top 10% child. And the, ch the bar at the bottom corresponds to the score for the child who's at the bottom 10%. We call those the 10th and the 9th centiles. And what you can see is there's just a huge distance um, between them. So... What this means is that within every classroom, we have huge degrees of variability. So let's take, first of all, look at the, um, the eight-year-old kids, the data from the eight-year-old kids here. We look at the, ch the, ch the ch lucky children up at the top 10%. And we see that, actually, if you track across um, that red line, their working memory capacities are pretty close to that of adults. So they've got their, they're only eight years of age. If we look at the children who are struggling in working memory terms, we'll see that they're actually down at the level of children in year one. So we get a massive variability. And what this means is that within a typical heterogeneous class within school, all of the age span of working memory variation is represented within that classroom. And this is a huge challenge to meet all of the needs of those different children in working memory terms. You may be interested in what happens to working memory in older age. It doesn't go down to zero. This is a misleading scale. 
Uh, actually, on the scale is what we call Z-score, so it's simply taking the average of all of the individuals from all of the adults that took, place in the, took part in this large study. It's taking the average, and that's what zero is, and it's just measuring them in terms of standard deviations. So it's not that the, those, those in their 80s can remember nothing, but they can certainly remember quite a lot less than the uh, younger people. Um, and what we can see, actually, is the age-related decline starts really early, um, and it happens really for all of the, the memory systems. We'll see it's, it's pretty steady and relentless. Um, the, the exception's quite interesting, though. It's, it's, it's a topic of another talk, really, but that's verbal knowledge. So that's our knowledge of um, uh, verbal facts, dictionary definitions. Um, so we actually, get, if anything, we keep, we keep on learning. And because that's semantic memory, as long as we keep, keep revisiting that, we can, we can keep going with that. So that's an area of relative strength, actually. And if we look at IQ, it's partly verbal, it's part, partly nonverbal. Um, not, verbal IQ tends not to decline that much with, with older age. So that's really good news. So hold on to that. Okay. Um, right. So low working memory abilities are really common um, with it, within the um, general population. In children, they are very characteristic of kids who have reading difficulties, kids who are struggling to learn maths, um, children with language impairments. Children with ADHD, I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. Um, children with genetic disorders, a variety of genetic disorders, and they can have different types of working memory problems. Um, there are other, other um, adult conditions um, and childhood conditions that aren't developmental, as in they don't necessarily start off from the early stage. So conditions, medical conditions, cardiovascular conditions such as hypertension also um, lead to have quite a, a large impact on working memory capacity. And that's actually why um, things like ACE inhibitors, the types of um, anti-hypertensive anti drugs, are incredibly effective, actually, at stopping that reduction in working memory, which, once it's happened, um, there's no recovery from. Uh, there are other um, mental health conditions that have an adverse effect, so anxiety, for example. So if you have a child who has mass anxiety, if you tell them you're about to give them a, a maths test and then give them a working memory test their working memory scores will come right down compared to when you've, that you just measure them without giving them that anxiety-inducing information. It all goes through ethics. So, um, but, um, so there are many different conditions that do actually constrain working memory. So um, many individuals all the time are facing real problems in their everyday life consequent. We've done quite a lot of work just working not with kids with special conditions, but just those children who are really the, the bottom bar of below, at and below that, that 10 centile point, the children who are at the lowest ability levels within the classroom but haven't been diagnosed with anything special. Um, but typically they're just bumping along the bottom, really, in terms of classroom achievement. And um, this, that's, uh, we wrote a book in 2008 um, which um, provides some of the information about a very um, large number of studies that we carried out just looking at these regular kids with working memory problems and in which we consider what we might be able to do to help them with. Um, right, here are the characteristics. They've got poor academic progress. So um, typically, 80% of children who have got low working memory will be struggling in either reading or maths or both. So it's a very high risk factor. Um, they have difficulties in following instructions. This isn't surprising, particularly actually if you sit and um, observe classrooms where you see actually the complexity of some of the instructions that are given to even young children. So here's an example. Put your sheets on the green table, arrow cards in the packet, put your pencil away and come sit on the carpet. Um, so we were observing John, who's a low working memory child, and he did what typically low working memory kids do. So he carried out the first step, 
um, and moved his sheets, and then he didn't do anything else. And actually, in this case, he just caught up with the rest of the group. So we have better recall of the first step. This is quite important because it, it suggests it wasn't that he wasn't listening, um, but rather he was just remembering that privileged first step of information, then he, he just lost the rest. Um, it's interesting to ask teachers what they think about these children who we just identify just by routine chip, um, screening as having working memory problems. Um, what they almost always say, actually what they never say is that they have memory problems. And we understand why actually from observing these children. Instead of what they say is they have a really short attention span and they describe them in ways that suggest they're, they're very easily distracted. So he's in a world of his own, she doesn't listen to a word I say, always daydreaming. Um, with him it's in one ear and out of the other. Now, this is interesting because this, these descriptions suggest failures of attention rather than failures of memory. We became interested in whether or not they're just different sides of the same coin. So is it the fact that if you have to keep in mind what you're doing in working memory and you lose that information due to overload, low working memory capacity, all you can do is something else? That information is just gone, that, to, that goal to guide your behaviour. And maybe these descriptions are just consequences of the loss of working memory information. So we started thinking, well, is low working memory just a form of ADHD? Now, ADHD um, is it's a clinical diagnosis. It's diagnosed on the basis of um, behaviour which is both hyperactive, so impulsive, always on the go, acts as if the motors are ticking very fast, and inattentive, being able to sustain attention to a, an ongoing task. So both of those qualities have to be satisfied over a long period of time. Um, there's another form, which is ADD, attention deficit disorder, that doesn't have hyperactivity, but the children are just inattentive. Now, actually, in the UK, the children are rarely um, diagnosed, in fact, with ADD, though in some cases they are. In North America, they're as frequently diagnosed with ADD as with ADHD, and they're given the same psychostimulant medication, such as Ritalin, for example, or methylphenidate. Okay, so um, here, here are the ADHD symptoms of inattention. Trouble keeping your attention, doesn't listen, seem to listen when spoken to directly, doesn't follow instructions. And it was as we read this symptom list, we realised it was all strikingly familiar. It was very, very similar to the characteristics we saw in just general low working memory kids. So we went back, we systematically looked at the kids' behaviour, we got the teachers to fill in the standard forms, the rating scales that people do to arrive at a diagnosis of ADHD. And I've shown in red here all of the symptoms which were equally significantly present in children with low working memory. So a very, very high degree of overlap. Um, so what we speculate is that actually the children that we identify, um, or many of them that we identify just by routine screaming as having low working memory, could, um, if they're in a different education system, be um, diagnosed with ADD. Maybe it's the same disorder. Um, I should say that the learning difficulties are the same. So we have kids with ADHD. Diagnosis of ADHD often brings extra resources to the school, um, classroom support um, of various different kinds. Is, is it the case that their needs, their cognitive needs, their learning needs, are greater than those of the average low working memory child? Well, if we look at these data here, these are the maths and the reading scores of three different groups. And I just want you to compare the children with ADHD. It's a large sample of kids over 80 and 50 children with low working memory, um, average score on these tests, for, typical for age, will be 100. And you can see that both groups are equally down on maths and reading. There is no difference. There's no additional 
um, disadvantage of the ADHD of the working memory children. So um, we'd like to argue that working memory, low working memory is a risk for academic learning, academic progress, and that under the current system which values diagnoses, clinical diagnoses, it's not um, potentially um, fairly resourced. Okay, so clearly what we need to know is what we can do to help individuals with weak working memory. So um, in particular, the work that we've been doing has been carried out with children in almost all cases. So where do we start? Um, one of the possibilities is that we can actually train working memory. And um, many of you will know that brain training in the past decade has become a massive growth area about which there's huge numbers of claims made. So there's now lots of computer games, some of them freely available on the web, a lot of them commercial um, and income generating, which promise to intensively train a variety of different cognitive abilities, but particularly working memory. Um, this is an example of the, the most widely marketed commercial program. It's called CogMed Working Memory Training. And uh, actually, we had um, not really a contract, an agreement with um, Pearson, who published CogMed, to do independent evaluations. So we're familiar with this. It's all, it's a, this is just um, a screenshot of the, um, the, the, the um, introductory um, screen. It's all configured around a fantasy robot figure. They're all space-themed um, activities. And each of these um, named rectangles corresponds to one activity that they carry out during the day, which involves remembering arbitrary information of longer and longer sequence, like working memory, and stopping at the point at which the child starts to fail. But having introducing loads of reward mechanisms so that if they breach, so it's their personal best, if they get further than they have done before, there's lots of bells and whistles and rewards that come with that. And the children train for between 20 and 25 days, not 24 hours a day, but just um, 35 minutes a day. Um, and big claims have been made about CogMed working memory training. Uh, here's an example. So for top left, um, I've said that psychologists love arbitrary and strange tasks. This is actually a, what we call a backward digit span task. So the, the child will hear a sequence of numbers like 5374 and then have to click the keypad in reverse order with a mouse. So they have to go backwards in the sequence. I'm not going to be able to remember it. Four, seven, six, three, maybe. Um, and then the idea is that, work, um, that span length gets longer and longer as the child becomes more successful. This is a visuospatial task where asteroids slowly move and they illuminate in sequence. The child has to click later according to the sequence in which the asteroids were illuminated. It sounds like a lot of fun, but actually it's quite a slog for the kids after a while. But um, we managed to keep them going. Okay, does it work? Um, it depends who you ask. Um, our finding and, and findings, and that of most of the researchers who've used really robust, rigorous methods, um, for example, randomised controlled trials, trials where kids get allocated equally to either this form of training or the same activities which don't stretch working memory, the findings from these type of studies suggest that, that working memory abilities, performance on these tasks really does improve, and they persist, actually. So the improvements are trackable, detectable, even 12 months later. But these benefits are entirely restricted to when the memory tasks are very similar to those that were trained. So, for example, I'll give you one, one illustration of the limitation. Remember, I talked about backward recall of the digits. What we've recently found is that training on backward recall uh, leads to great improvement in backward digit recall. But if now you have letters on the keypad rather than digits, you don't get any gains. 
So it's really specific to the type of material. So um, clearly we've got great capacities to be able to tinker and find ways around, solve the problem of, of improving task performance, but they tend not to be targeting the underlying capacity of working memory that we carry around our, our free-range working memory, which is actually vital when it comes to the classroom or when we need to write down the telephone number or any of the other myriad of activities we need to carry out. Um, Moreover, what we've also found is that these, these, the training, the transfer to other tasks that are very similar only happens when, when you're training, you have to do something that's really unfamiliar. If it's something that you often do, like remember digits in forward sequence, then even your working memory for forward digits doesn't improve. So, and that's because probably it's already so highly practiced, we've got um, mechanisms to do that already. We don't have to learn to do something new. So there are real limits um, in working memory training, and it's not really surprising that what people have found is that if you train working memory, children's attention problems don't miraculously improve. They don't become better learners. And it's probably just because the distance between what you're training and what you need it for in everyday life is just too great. Okay. So um, it's also the case what we, we've looked at the kids who do best, actually, in transferring the small gains that they, they make to other tasks. And we find that these are the kids who have really good problem-solving abilities. So it's as though that's, that's what it is. They're, they're solving the problem of how to do this weird thing. And um, they, they're, they're good at developing strategies for doing that. So sadly, what this means is that working memory training is most beneficial for kids who are already of relatively high cognitive abilities. So the ones that we really want to target who are struggling um, don't seem to benefit to the same degree. Um, there are other ways, though, and um, I don't want the message to be unduly negative here. Um, it remains the fact that children do frequently um, encounter working memory overload and they fail to complete the, all the learning tasks that have to be carried out in the classroom for them to progress and acquire knowledge in these very complex knowledge domains like learning to read or developing mathematical abilities. And there are ways of um, supporting children and preventing working memory overload. Many of these correspond to great practice that we already see in the classroom. So some teachers are great already in running the memory-aware classroom that really supports children who are at the lower um, working memory capacity end. Um, so what can we do? Um, what teachers can be aware of which children have low working memory. It's easy to determine. You can keep, for those children, the working memory loads low. We have simple rules of thumb about how much information we would expect a child to be able to keep in mind to follow instructions. We can also support the use of um, memory aids and strategies. Now, these are interesting because actually these tend to be ways of relying on other systems than working memory. So, for example, um, if we're able to remember um, a, a sequence, well, if we know how to carry out a task, not by relying on a sequence of verbal instructions, but we've got a very nice pictorial flowchart of what we have to do first, second, and third. And maybe we have an audio recording. Many kids have access to audio recorders within the class of what the teacher actually said that the children can remind themselves. That gets over, in many ways, the working memory limitations. And all the evidence is that children with low working memory aren't generally low working memory capacity. It's not that they're poor at everything. Um, they, um, and th their um, progression of learning is enhanced by using this sort of approach. Um, for anyone who's interested, the left-hand guide um, a class is called Understanding Working Memory um, a Classroom Guide. 
is available. We wrote it for um, to be accessible to anyone. It's not a very lengthy document. It's really mainly targeting um, primary school teachers and families. Um, and that's available on our website. So um, do have a look on, on my website. Just follow my name and type Cambridge, and you'll probably get to this, this website if you are interested in accessing these and other documents that we have, guidance documents. Uh, we work really closely with teachers to make sure that the materials that we use are appropriate, um, and we have to be guided by, by the teachers. We're not experts in classroom behaviour. Okay. Um, Finally, this is a really new um, area for us and a new set of findings. So remember that I said that reading abilities are highly linked with working memory capacities as are maths abilities. So kids are good, good at one, tend to be good at the other. We recently had the opportunity, we opened a research clinic in Cambridge for kids with problems, any problems in attention, learning and or memory. So we're talking kids with ADHD, dyslexia, dyscalculia, just kids who were a bit struggling in the classroom. The reason we did that is we want to understand whether, what's similar about all these children, disregard the diagnosis, but what are the main dimensions that we have to identify that we can help kids with. And we ended up with data from 260 children who have problems in the key areas of learning for primary school, which are maths, reading and language. Actually, when we looked at those kids, if we took a standard cutoff for, working, for a working memory deficit on the working memory test we gave, only 30% of them actually had work, low working memory. So it's certainly not the case that low working memory is the only determinant of these learning difficulties. It looks like it's just one of multiple contributory factors. So it's important not to overstate the importance of working memory. But the really surprising finding that's forced us really to, to rethink is that when we looked at the kids who didn't have learning, ability, um, learning problems, so who were absolutely fine in maths and reading and language, we found they almost never had working memory problems. So only 10% of them had working memory problems. So actually, if, if you knew that a child had perfectly okay, age-appropriate working memory, you could be almost perfectly confident that they didn't have um, learning difficulties. So this is really interesting. Instead of now looking at the deficit kids, it tells us something about the kids who are, who are actually doing okay. And it suggests that, firstly, working memory is only one factor that causes learning difficulties, but that having really good working memory um, capacities might actually help the child compensate and protect against the other problems that they have. So it might be a way of actually enhancing the child and provide the, allowing the child to develop new strategies. So good working memory is certainly extremely positive. So that's it, more or less, actually. And um, I've left some time for questions, which I hope you'll free, feel free to ask. Um, this is what I hope I might have convinced you. Um, firstly, that working memory is really important in everyday life. We're everyday working memory users, even though we don't know it. Um, it's extremely fragile, so we can't depend on it. And if we can rely on some other memory system, then we will do, if at all possible. And that's a good idea. Some of us have more of it than others, so working memory capacity is very variable across the age span, but also within individuals. And you don't really get much spontaneous recovery from low working memory. So an individual who has low working memory at one point in time tends to track on at the same low level with some developmental improvements. Um, it probably can't be trained. Fundamental working memory capacity probably can't be trained. Intensive training isn't going to help, but it can be supported, so we can find ways around it. I'll say a little bit about that in just one minute. 
Um, having good working memory skills is a, is, a, is a great real benefit. And actually, quite often, we get contacted by um, parents in particular who say, my child's got all sorts of learning problems, but they've got really strong working memory. How can that be? And you know, should I be worried about their, their poor um, learning? Um, what we would argue is that, that, that those children actually have huge potential to be able to develop other strategies, so it's a real positive achievement. Finally, and relatedly, the impacts of, of poor working memory skills can also be um, overcome by compensation. And I've been really inspired here by work that we've carried out with university dyslexic students, particularly at York with um, graduate students. So what we did was we recruited um, um, students, it's, uh, it's a competitive university for students coming with, with high A-level grades, come out with great degrees at York. We recruited students who'd registered themselves as dyslexic with the um, learning support service. We compared them with kids who, who didn't, students who didn't have um, dyslexia. Um, what we found was that, of course, the, the dyslexic kids tended to have low working memory. But when we asked them how they'd managed to achieve what they had, they described a whole set of strategies that they'd develop and devise, some through self-discovery, some by you know, the right sort of teachers, some with families that have worked alongside them, that helped them offset the working memory problems they have. So the working memory problems that students in tertiary education tend to have is, for example, with lecture-based delivery, large amounts of information delivered rapidly, um, they have to, have to write notes at the same time, it's just an impossible task for them to be able to marshal all of that at the same time. So what these students often do is they do audio recordings offline, they spend another hour transcribing it, transcribing their notes, and then maybe another hour actually organising those notes, using them in different ways. They often use, for example, mind mapping techniques. So often, individuals with poor working memory, verbal working memory, nonetheless have very good imagery skills. They're very good at visualisation. And for those individuals, um, mind mapping and, and charting the relationships between contexts, which, of course, what we know is that's going to be great for pushing information to semantic memory, can be a big compensation. And these students never took revision lightly. So they, were, they, were, you know, they, they knew that they had to do massive amounts of revision, massive amounts of practice on specific questions. So um, hats off to these students. They achieved what they'd achieved by huge amounts of extra effort and extra work uh, above and beyond the, the non-dyslexic student. So strategies, I think, matter. They have to be the right strategies for the individual. And at this point, I'll finish. Thank you very much. very much. Um, if I could just have the lights up. We have got 10 minutes for questions. You don't have to ask questions for 10 minutes, but it would be great if you do have any questions. Um, okay, I'm just going to wait for the roving mic. There's a, can we just have this question at the front um, so that everybody can hear the question as well as the answer? Yes. Hello. I know you haven't looked at this, but do you have a feeling for how much of this is genetic and how much is early environment? Yes, that's um, a great point, actually. There is quite substantial work, particularly on very large-scale twin studies from the US, um, showing that its um, working memory skills are almost perfectly heritable. That is, it's a very, very high um, rate of concordance between, um, for example, identical twins as opposed to a weaker relationship between non-identical twins and siblings. So it does seem to be very important, um, which doesn't mean that environmental factors aren't also important. And actually, if you look at twin studies, of course, they often have the same environment. So that, that picks up on that too. And 
maybe identical um, twins have the, even more identical environments. But certainly heredity is, is very important. I don't think it means that they, the die is set, though. I think there's everything to be gained by providing other types of support. Um, can we have the gentleman at the back there in the middle? Um, it's the, the one to the left, actually. I'll come, I'll come back to that gentleman. Yes. Have you used methylphenidate to uh, alter working memory? Um, we haven't, um, partly because we're not, I mean, as psychologists, we're not licensed to do so. Um, but I have been involved um, with, with trials involving um, pediatric psychiatrists and pharmacological companies who've looked at the effects of taking children off methylphenidate, these are these psychostimulant-type medications, and that testing memory on and off. Um, they're, they're actually um, very fast-release um, drugs, so after 24 hours, the effect of the drugs is out of the system. What you find is you get very specific effects on visual aspects of working memory. So um, memory for, um, for example, spatial locations, but not for verbal material. And we know that that's because these drugs t primarily target areas in the right hemisphere of the brain that, that subserve visual aspects of working memory. Actually, most of the working memory demands in the classroom tend to be verbal rather than visuospatial. Um, but there, there certainly is a significant enhancement in those visual, visual aspects. Could I, could I ask you just to move the mic to that gentleman along the way? Thank you. Thanks. Hi. Um, is there a correlation between other types of memory and working memory, if you're good at one and not good at working memory? Um, there is generally a correlation. So um, what, what typically happens if you look at any pair of cognitive abilities, they will tend to go together. So they're more highly, they're not, they don't have a zero correlation. So people who are better at one thing tend to be better at another. But there's huge amounts of variability. So for example, we know that um, individuals who have um, poor learning, which is usually an, an, uh, an issue related to episodic memory and its transfer to semantic memory, might well have perfectly adequate working memory. So, so there are areas of real compensation. Um, and it's relatively easy, actually, to profile a child. You probably, in an hour, an hour's assessment will be able to give you a very reliable indication of where a, um, a child or an adult's areas of relative strength are, which gives you a really good idea about where to start helping in terms of compensation. So, great question. I think we'd like, I'd like a female questioner, actually. This lady here. Hi, thank you. Um, I was just wondering if you've looked at um, the impact of emotional preoccupation, attachment, anxiety, in relation to working memory, because a lot of children with um, attachment anxiety have present with the same issues as children with ADHD. You know, we can see the cohort of looked-after children have the worst academic results. Um, I was just wondering if you've done any work in that or know of any in that No, um, I haven't done any work, but there's increasing interest in this in, in a whole host of different aspects of, of non-optimal environment, um, environmental circumstances, um, including actually low socioeconomic status as well. Um, certainly with anxiety in particular, if you remember I talked about mass anxiety, we know that anything that induces anxiety diminishes almost all cognitive capacities in the here and now, and working memory is the ultimate one, so that's very sensitive. Um, if we have a child who's in almost um, continuous states of anxiety, then we, what we would expect is very long-lasting effects, which will then impact on learning. Um, we're trying to understand at the moment, so we've got work... I've, I've lost the lady I was talking to there. Um, 
Uh, we're trying to understand much better the particular mechanisms of working memory that are infect affected by socioeconomic um, status. So kids who've, who've got, you know, come from economic disadvantage, we're trying to work there as well. Um, so I think we're now in a situation with this field that we understand the nuts and bolts, how to go about assessing, um, and it's really important that we understand the, this broader territory of how emotion comes in. So another good question, thank you. Um, Right, so, uh, is there a, a mic that we could take right up to the back? There's a gentleman. There. Thank you. I do think that um, poor working memory we will be formally diagnosed as a learning difficulty anytime soon in schools. And if so, have you got a robust measure in order to diagnose students with it? Right. Um, Yes, it's easy, to, it's easy to assess. You can probably reliably assess it in 10 minutes. I would hope it wouldn't be assessed as a learning disorder because there are some kids who have working memory problems who nonetheless do, do okay in terms of learning. And I think it's much better that we diagnose on the basis of a functional problem. That is, where a child is presenting with a problem the co the, where the consequences are adverse. Um, we do quite often see children who have um, poor working memory who have quite okay learning. And that isn't a cause of concern as far as I can see developmentally. We, we can reliably assess it, but I wouldn't want to argue that um, it should be diagnosed as a disorder. Some psychologists are starting to do it. And actually, one of my sons was dyslexic. Um, and uh, when he went to university and sought a re-diagnosis of dyslexia, which he got earlier, um, one, the psychologist said he can't be dyslexic because he has a really good working memory. So I thought I'd shot myself in the foot then. <laughs> uh, final question, that lady behind that, that question. I just want to know about hypertension and working memory. Is it hypertension itself, or is it the drugs that are prescribed? And also, if... Does it destroy working memory, hypertension, and, and you, that's it? Yes, it's, um, it's a good question. Uh, what happens is the, um, the, the high blood pressure causes damage around the blood vessels that are going in the brain, and that, that causes um, loss of white matter, which is the communicating structures within the brain. And actually, you can see it on scans. You get just large holes in white matter, and that's caused by untreated hypertension. So when... Um, antihypertensive drugs that are given, that damage stops. It can't be reversed because the, 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 the structural properties have been lost. So actually, early drug treatment is incredibly effective and it seems to stop any further decline. So that's actually one really good reason for um, early consideration of the use of antihypertensive drugs. Um, it's also the case that that's true across the wide range of um, t um, hypertension of blood pressure. So it's a relatively high clinical cutoff that's, that's operated, say 90 over 160 for a diagnosis. But even individuals just below that probably might be getting some of these white matter tangles as well. So um, I think it's important information. I'm going to thank you for being a, a great audience of memory experts, asking smart questions. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.